Thank you, worship team. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us clear minds, receptive hearts, and an attitude that would be willing to submit to your lordship and reign in our lives, that we may walk the way you desire us to walk, speak the way that honors you, and think in a way that magnifies your glory. Father, we pray that you would use your word to convict this morning. Change our lives for your glory. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are in James chapter 3 verse 17, but before you go there, I'm going to begin by laying the foundation from Job chapter 28 as we work our way towards James 3. Man, I should say we, do not know the value of wisdom. We are pragmatists at heart. We do what works because it works. Because it works, we think it must be from God. And so we don't ask. Wisdom, whether it's regarding our jobs, whether it's regarding our partners, whether it's regarding where we live, whether it's regarding how much we should spend, we think we've got it all sorted out. We interpret the success of our lives as a sign of wisdom and a blessing from God. Yet, fools succeed as well. Just look at Hollywood. Just saying. Success in life does not equal wisdom. Read the book of Proverbs. The fool, maybe, Read Ecclesiastes, rather. The fool sometimes flourishes. He sometimes gains what the wise man has been working for all his life. That doesn't mean he's wise. It doesn't mean he received a blessing from God. Listen to Job 28, verse 12. Where shall wisdom be found? I want you to take note of the question, where? Where is it found? That's a locational question. Where shall wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? If you were here last week, you would now, should now see the connection between wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And it is usually used together with knowledge or understanding. And so Job, at least God, in this section deals with the problem of wisdom. I love how this is laid out in verses 1 through to 11, 
the ingenuity of man is brought to the fore. Listen, surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Just think about when this is written. We are about 4,000 years before Christ. And yet they have technology that is equal to what engineers are familiar with today. Take note what it says. Man put an end to darkness. Think of a cave. You go in a cave, what are you going to see? Nothing. Darkness. Yet man has the ingenuity to figure out how to burn or to make light in the midst of darkness. And searches out to the farthest limit, that is the cave. The ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley way. The, the language here is pretty interesting. It's, he burrows out shafts in a valley way from where, uh, from where anyone lives. And they are forgotten by travelers. They cannot see it. It's below the ground. Interesting, eh? They hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. Now, translators have no idea what this means. And I have no idea what that means. The best that we can come up with is that he's talking about the burrowing below the ground. And it seems like it's hanging in space. It's below mankind and nobody knows it's there. It goes this way and that way, speaking about the ingenuity of man to burrow below the earth. As for the earth, out of it comes bread and underneath it is turned up as by fire, probably speaking about the lava or the magma below the earth. We don't know exactly what exactly God is speaking about here. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold, speaking about the precious jewels that is found below the earth. The path uh, no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. That's pretty obvious because it's so far below the earth. The proud beasts have not trodden on it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. What do you think he's talking about? Explosion. Man finds a flinty rock and figures out, hang on, I can blow up mountains with it. God doesn't have a problem with it. God is showing the ingenuity of mankind. He cuts out channels, it's the same idea as burrowing valleys. He cuts out channels in the rocks. And his eye see every precious thing. Now think about that. He cuts out channels in rocks. They figured out how to burrow through rocks back then. And we think we're smart. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle. In other words, he knows he has ingenuity. He's got the wisdom to know that if he doesn't dam up the dam, 
What's going to happen? When they dig down, it's going to rush the, the, the caves, which means they will drown. Man has general, common understanding, wisdom, and knowledge. The thing that is hidden, he brings out to light, speaking about the precious stones that is dug, that lays below the ground. And God's respond to this is, consider the ingenuity of man, consider the natural wisdom of man, and yet God asks this question, where shall wisdom be found? It is not in that and it is not in your digging. Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth and it is not found in the land of the living. living. It is interesting that God uses um, humor in the next section. The deep says, it is not with me. Does the deep speak? No, not at all. And the sea says, it is not with me. See, God has a sense of humor. He can make jokes. Verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. 23. God understands the way to it. He knows the place of it or its place as it is translated. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the sun. All your discovery, God says, all your ingenuity is not wisdom. But I know where it is. I know its place. I know its location. And look how the author expresses the wisdom of God, for he looks to the ends of the earth, earth and sees everything under the heavens. Does that phrase sound familiar to you? Vanity, vanity. I've seen everything under the heavens, and it is vanity. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by Measure God demonstrates his wisdom in his sovereignty in how he deals with nature. I'm in absolute control of the weight of the wind. I know how much pressure to add to the wind, otherwise, it will crush you. I apportion the waters by measure. There is no more water on earth than they should be. We are not going to drown in a cataclysmic flood that is going to swallow up all living. God tells it where to end and that's where it ends. When he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. Wow. I don't know about you, but this it just puts God in a different realm. He decrees the rain, exactly the amount that should fall, will fall. Notice what he says about lightning. The way of lightning and thunder. The direction of lightning and thunder. Where does it come from? 
a wise and all-knowing God. He saw it and declared it and established it. And he scrutinized it out, is the word they searched out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. God, in the midst of Job's suffering, and a lot of people have a struggle with Job, in that God doesn't actually resolve the issue that Job is uh, experiencing. In the midst of his suffering, God doesn't tell him, I'm going to give you the answer to life's problems. I'm going to tell you why you're going through it. You know what God says? Where's wisdom found, Job? You see, you do not know the value of knowing me. You do not know what it means to fear me. You do not know what it means to have the fear of the Lord. Because if you did, that is what wisdom is. And the consequent result of that is to turn away from evil. That is understanding. God provides the answer to the question, where is wisdom found? This is the answer, the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. We have no idea how valuable wisdom is. We have no idea how much God wants us to enjoy the endless, boundless resources of the wisdom that he wants to bestow on us. Wisdom from God is made manifest in thought life, in speech life, and in relational life. Wisdom informs the mind, calms the heart, directs the will, protects peace, pursues righteousness, and bears fruit in keeping with righteousness that only God can provide. God alone provides wisdom that pleases Him. We don't know the value of wisdom. I enjoyed studying this book in my recent studies, God provides insight to the all-important question that Job has. Job doesn't sin with his mouth, but he does have questions. How can a righteous man suffer such harsh, quote-unquote, unrighteous things? Even his uh, visitors, his friends come, and they don't fully understand what is happening. God's answer to him is, Job, you don't need to understand. Wisdom doesn't require answers. Wisdom trusts in a sovereign, faithful God that knows what is good for us. That is what wisdom is. God says to him, if I direct both lightning and thunder, if I have wisdom to know the weight of water, uh, of air, how much more, Job, would I not have wisdom to be in absolute control of every minuscule moment of your life. Does that sound familiar? Is that not the same words that Jesus says? If he cares, if your father cares for every bird that falls and he knows every hair on your head, how much more will he not care for you? That is the wisdom of God on display, but we don't know how to trust in that. And so we pursue a life that we think is best for ourselves. And we do not rest in the wisdom of God for ourselves. 
wisdom above, above, from above, is what we need, but also what we lack. James chapter 3, verse 17. This will be our focus this morning, and we will spend a portion of our time looking at the significance of the fruit of wisdom. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I'm going to slow down this morning and give attention to the importance of understanding the character of wisdom, the characteristics of wisdom. I want you to walk away with having a little bit of an understanding what God is after when he speaks about wisdom as a practical reality for your life. Wisdom from above here is equal to the structure that is found in James chapter 1 in verse 17. Just listen to what it says. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Wherever God turns, he does not cast a shadow. So many interpretations of what that means. But here the purity of God is in view and it does not act from a point of view that will compromise his character. The idea of from above in verse 17 as well as here in verse 17 of chapter 3 is locational, coming down, directional, coming down from a location. It's either a place or a person. Now, this word from above is obviously like most Semitic words, uh, is interpreted in a variety of different ways. It could mean um, from on high, from the Father, or from uh, the heavens. These are all ways to describe the direction from which something comes down. It is a world that is distinct from our world. And so when James says here that this wisdom is from above, he's, he's trying to dis, dif, differentiate between the wisdom that is from above and the wisdom that is from below or in this world. It's drastically different to what we know. It's a place that is not in this world and it comes from a place that is not from this world. It comes from God. Now, if that is where wisdom comes from, from the very presence of him who is wise, understanding, righteous, full of mercy, full of grace, compassionate, what do you expect to see in those who receive the wisdom of God? Those very qualities. And that is what James is after to demonstrate the qualities or the characteristics of this wisdom. I call that the fruit of wisdom. Wisdom from above is life transforming. It doesn't save you, but it does change you. It is part of God's sanctifying work in our life. Genuine faith, faith has a life-changing effect upon those who are saved. We saw that in chapter 1. Verse 17 through, uh, verse 18 through to 19. Now, 
Just because you have theological knowledge doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you know stuff doesn't mean you are being changed. Internet theology can only carry you thus far. Internet theology is those who go to Google and ask questions of Google. What is the incarnation, Google? That, that doesn't mean that you're wise, just because you have an answer. Now we have, um, what is this new thing that they use? The chat GPT. I read an article a few weeks ago. A pastor asked chat GPT to make him a sermon. And his comment was, it was the best sermon I ever read. Interesting. That an artificial, quote-unquote, intelligence is able to make a better sermon than humans. <laughs> Impersonal, digital theology does not equal saving faith. This is the age that we are in. We walk around with our cell phones, and whenever we have theological questions, we don't run to the scripture per se. We go and look at the resources that are available, and I'm all for that. But if that's the weight of your theology, if that's the weight of your Christianity, I'm concerned about the wisdom that you have. If you cannot think through Scripture, if you cannot think through the words of God Himself, do you actually have wisdom? See, genuine faith must result in wisdom. Faith is seen in wisdom's heart, in wisdom's hands, and in wisdom's feet. Notice what I said. Faith is seen. Wisdom doesn't save, but faith is demonstrated in wise acts of righteousness that honors our God. Faith is seen in what is characteristic of wisdom from God. And this is James's whole point in this book. He demonstrates the quality of saving faith on the tongue, in the relationships, and now in wisdom. Wisdom from above is marked by certain qualities that is not self-reliant, it is not self-glorifying, it is not self-exalting, but it demonstrates a relationship with a God that changes our lives. So this morning, what I want to talk to you about is the seven fruits of wisdom. Seven fruits of wisdom. I'm not going to get through all of them, and I don't intend to get through all of them, but I want to give you a bit of a structure of this verse. There's both an internal quality and an external demonstration of wisdom. I think the structure is very simple because of how it is written in the Greek language. For instance, the main clause, the main substantive part of the sentence is this. But the wisdom from above is first pure. That's your main point. That is what James wants us to understand. The quality of wisdom is this. Pure. Then every other um, attribute, or it's called an adjective, every other attribute that is given below that qualifies or explains what this wisdom is. But James goes a point further. Every quality, four in a row, starts with the same letter in English, E. 
And then he pauses and he gives us two words, full of mercy and good fruits. And then he pauses again and gives us the last two, which starts with the letter A. Now, we don't have that in our English translations, but that is the internal structure of this passage. And so I'm going to follow what James aims for us to understand. So first of all, we're going to look at what wisdom is in terms of purity. And then we're going to look at the first qualities of wisdom from above. Peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Those are the three qualities that explain what wisdom is in relation to its purity. So first of all, wisdom is external to us. It comes from above. That speaks of the source of wisdom. Secondly, wisdom is internal, which speaks about the effect of wisdom, speaking about purity. Then thirdly, wisdom is external in terms of how it relates to others. That's the three components that I will cover this morning. So let's first consider the source of wisdom. The source of wisdom. James says that this wisdom comes from above. The word here relates to a location and sometimes it can speak of direction as in chapter 1 verse 17. There it's directional. Here it speaks of location from above, coming down. There's a directional element, yes, implicit in it, but where is it found is the question that Job that is asked of Job. It's not in this world. And so J- James says that it is from above. What is the meaning of from above? Well, where God dwells. That's the whole point. James wants us to understand that this wisdom doesn't come from your intellect. doesn't come from your understanding doesn't come from how you figure out things. This is wisdom that God gives. James wants to illustrate that there is a connection between saving faith and the demonstration of wisdom. How do I know that? Because he uses the same structure here in 3.17 as he does in 1.17. In 1.17, he speaks about good gifts that come from God, and it's in the the context of both suffering and then salvation. Suffering prior to verse 17 and salvation in verse 18. See, God is not the author of evil. God is not the, the one who tempts us to sin. God can never do that because he's of purer eyes. What he does give us in verse 18 is salvation. He saved us. He brought us forth by the word of truth. That is, what comes down from above is good because God, by nature, is good. The same element here is present in that. Wisdom from above is first pure because of where it comes from. It comes from a God who is pure. One author tried to make a connection between this purity and the fall of light. I don't think that James is making that correspondence. Um, I can see why you would want to do that, but there is a definite self-quotation of from above, that there's salvation and good things that come from above, and here wisdom comes from above. There's an equivative sense here, that just like salvation comes from God, so wisdom comes from God. Jesus often used this words. To speak about the Father who is above and give good, good gifts to his people. So the source of wisdom 
is not found in this world. The source of wisdom is God. That is found in this first line. But wisdom from above is first pure. It comes from God. What is James saying? Look at the kind of wisdom that God gives. It is unlike the natural wisdom that you are demonstrating amongst one another. What does this wisdom look like? The first reality that James highlights about this wisdom is that it is pure. It is pure. What does James mean when he says this word, when he uses this word, uh, pure? I'm going to answer that in a moment's time. I, I first want to deal with this little word first. Now, there's a variety of ways to interpret that. Some people say it is of first importance. Like, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 15 verse 3, where Paul uses the word, same word, first, but then followed by importance. And so they take it to mean that it's out of all the attributes of wisdom, this is the most important quality of wisdom in that it is pure. Now, I don't think that that is what James is saying. It could also mean that the most important quality of wisdom is purity. So not only is it first above every other quality, but it's the most important quality in the series of qualities um, that wisdom has. And I take issue with even that view because what is God and how does God describe wisdom in the Old Testament? It is the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. That's what God says. And so to replace purity with, uh, to replace fear of God with purity is to kind of undermine what it means to fear God and to have wisdom. So what does he mean here when he says first? Now there's something that is missing in our translations. And I'm going to read it to you. I didn't put it in my notes, but I want to read it to you from, from memory just to, to help you understand what James has in, in view here. But wisdom on the one hand is first pure, then peaceable. You see what's missing? On the one hand. And so what James is trying to identify is how you will see wisdom first. How you will recognize wisdom first. It is not the most important quality, but it is an essential quality of what wisdom is. James is impressing that First, on the one hand, there is an internal aspect of wisdom. That's what he means by this word pure. Before, it is external. So on the one hand, wisdom from above is first experienced internally. Before it is experienced or demonstrated externally. Every other element, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere, all of those relate to how you relate to people. Yet purity relates to the essence of wisdom, that which relates to you first and foremost. Wisdom from above is identified by purity. So what does it mean by purity? There's first a contrast to what I've just mentioned before. You see that in the beginning of verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Now look at verse 16. For where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, which is um, uh, uh, recognizable by this wisdom from 
from below, uh, where that exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure. We can't both preach. So in contrast to the demonstrations of earthly wisdom that involves both uh, jealousy and selfish ambition and disorder, that is chaos, and every vow practice, you have this element that sets wisdom from above apart from earthly wisdom. It is pure. This relates to the quality of the wisdom that God gives. The reason we demonstrate fool's wisdom is because it dominates our hearts. Notice what he says in uh, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast uh, um, and be false against the truth. You are dominated by this kind of life. You're dominated in your heart. Speaks about the old person and how uh, what is present in his heart dominates his, his existence. So first present in your heart is the selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. And James says, but wisdom that comes from God is pure. Now, what is this word pure? It's not the common word that is used of holiness that is often uh, used of God and his people, but it can be used in a cultic sense, which relates to someone that is distinct um, and morally pure um, from everything else that is impure. Now, that use is not found in the New Testament. It can be used of moral purity in terms of Christ. Uh, listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him, you have the verbal form here, of this word, purifies himself as he is pure. Same word used in James. So there's an ongoing aspect of purification that takes place because of his um, possession of purity. This is who Jesus is by nature. He himself is pure. And that kind of purity, I believe, is what is behind James's idea of purity here. It is innocent, unaffected uh, from the defilement or impurity of this world. Wisdom is pure. Why is it pure though? Because purity relates to God first and foremost, not to us. We don't wake up in the morning and say, well, I am a pure man or woman today, if you know your sin and yourself, you know that that's not you. So it does not describe us by nature. We are new in Christ and we grow in our purity, but this is not definitive of what we are. This is descriptive of who God is and his nature. He is distinct from the disorder and the vile influences of this world. He's morally pure all the time. So wisdom that comes from, the, from above has that quality. So when God gives it to his people, when he imparts this wisdom to his people, what does he also give them? That capacity 
to not only distinguish between immorality and moral purity, but to pursue it first and foremost. Wisdom is undefiled. This is the internal quality of wisdom that comes from God to man. It is innocent, uncorrupted by this world. Again, there's a contrast between how your wisdom, the worldly wisdom that influences our thinking. This morning we heard, for instance, in evangelical wisdom, Uh, evangelical feminism, that is worldly wisdom that has infiltrated the church. We think through the world and take the the, the components of the world and apply it to the church of Jesus Christ. That is wisdom that is earthly and demoniacal, not from God. Wisdom is not an intellectual manifestation, but is a God-honoring possession. It relates to God first and foremost before it relates to man. So purity speaks about how God is able to give us what we need to pursue purity, to keep ourselves unstained from this world. So firstly, wisdom that comes from above is marked by a quality that is derived from God himself, that is pure. At this stage, James moves on to describe what wisdom actually looks like in practice. It is not only wisdom that is pure, but also it is expressed in peaceableness. So then wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. This does not mean peace at any cost does not mean sacrificing the truth for the sake of peace. Today we are in the habit of doing that. So we compromise truthfulness, we compromise that which is set by God as a standard for the sake of peace with those who have no peace with God. People do dumb things for peace. I'm talking about people in the world. The suggestions for creating peace between Israel and uh, Hamas are somewhat ridiculous. Israel, at the moment, is defending their own lives, and then they are the the, the perpetrators of mass murder. Yeah. So they need to lay down arms. Mm -hmm. That makes absolute sense. What does this word peaceable mean? Relational peace with God is manifested in relational peace with God's people. I think that is obvious. But why is it so hard then? Why is it so difficult? The source of this word, however, is more than just the absence of war. Now, it does have that that subtle meaning that there is no conflict, but it's more than that. In the Bible, it relates to an element of peace that you possess between you and God that is expressed between you and man. Our peace with God is seen in our peace with man. Where does this come from? It's a very old Semitic word, and we know it. I'm going to give you the Hebrew term, and you know this word. Shalom. And that means what? Peace, or hello, or goodbye. Or blessings be upon you. It's such a wide uh, um, 
it has such a wide semantic range. And, and part of that is this idea of peaceableness. And do you know where that peaceableness comes from? It comes from the shalom that God has given you in that he's no longer at war with the one who has his shalom, who has his peace. And so as a result of that, God's people, when they greet one another, they say, peace be to you. Or peace be upon you. Or shalom. May what we experience with God be your portion in reality as well. And may we experience the peace that we have received from God. It's such rich value in that. So the richness of this word comes from the Old Testament sense. James doesn't explain it to his audience. Why? Because they are Jews. He doesn't have to explain it to them. They share the same culture and use the same words. This is the sense behind it. There's peace with God, which is demonstrated in peaceableness with mankind. I'm going to limit that. It is peace with God that results in peace with God's people. So God did not give shalom to the nations. He gave his peace to his people. This wisdom from above is antithetical to the wisdom that is natural to us. Listen again to the wisdom that we naturally demonstrate. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. See the contrast. There will be fights. There will be wars. There will be conflict in natural wisdom. But wisdom from above implies that there is a relationship that you have with God who is above. And that relationship, which is primarily um, founded on peace, and I'll explain that in a moment's war, uh, in a moment's time, is seen in how you relate to each other. It is the opposite of unrest. It is the opposite of pride. It is the opposite of chaos. That's the wisdom that God gives. Earthly wisdom majors on pride, majors on selfish ambition, majors in anything that results in disorder. But wisdom from God results in peace. Listen to Proverbs 3. You could turn there. May I help you see it? Proverbs 3, verse 13. Notice what he says. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain of her is better than the gain of silver. Where did you hear that from? Job 28. And her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. He's not talking about a woman. He's talking about wisdom. When you find it, it is the most precious commodity that you will have. 
Life long is in her uh, is in her right hand, and in the left hand are riches and honor. Now, don't think riches in terms of um, financial riches. It's bounty. In other words, she is endless. It's interesting how uh, Proverbs here contrasts the wayward woman, the foolish woman, to uh, this woman, wisdom, which is not a real woman. It's uh, just a way of speaking. Her ways are of, the 17, pleasantness. And all her paths are what? Peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her are called blessed. In contrast to the wayward woman, the adulterous woman who causes death, when you find wisdom, you find life. What Proverbs shows here is the holistic nature of wisdom, but right at the heart of it is this, her ways are pleasantness and peace. Wisdom results in peace. Now, wisdom does not mean that when you gain wisdom, you gain peace with God. Why not? Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a relational peace that God establishes. You had nothing to do with that. God is at war with sinners. Understand that. God hates sin. And he abhors the wicked. So God will crush the enemy finally. He will crush the enemy. If you are not saved, you are a, an enemy of God. But that relationship of Enmity with God is broken by the cross of Jesus Christ and he brings peace between God and man. Sorry, God and man. He's the one that bridges that gap of war between God and man and says, I am here to make peace between God and you. As a result of that, we are unified. Not We don't become one with God, but you're unified with God in, 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 in the sense that God is no longer at war with, with us. Because the, the object of his war was his son. Jesus stood in our place and died on the cross, receiving the war of God on sin. So that we do not have to. So, understanding this relational peace that you have with God, what does it mean for relational peace with one another? It must be present. It's got to be. Why? Because Paul in Ephesians says, maintain the peace that you have received. He's not saying create peace. No, God has already established that peace. Romans 8 verse 6 says this, that the, the mind of the spirit, let me just see if I can find it. The mind of the spirit is life and peace. Um, Romans 8 Six for the, the the for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind of the spirit is life and peace. Again, relational peace with God results in relational peace with people. Peace comes to those who have received faith 
from God, and therefore they are in a peaceful, peaceable relationship with God. So the expectation that James has is this. Well, if you know God, guess what? You will be peaceable. That is wisdom. If you are saved, then your relationships must be affected. Let me restate it this way. The person who is changed by God, the person who has been changed by the grace of God, must demonstrate peace in their earthly relationships. Why? Because of the peace that they've received from God. Why is it so hard then? I didn't answer that. You will note very carefully, I did not answer that. The reason is, is because we lean on earthly wisdom. We are dominated by our heart that tries to please ourselves. And a heart that is focused on me will cause conflict with you. A heart that focuses inward will not be concerned with those on the outward. Make sense? Notice how James helps us here. For the wisdom from above is first an inward reality, pure. It is first right with God. It is first, it first has an experience with God before it is demonstrated on a practical human level. Peaceableness implies that you promote peace and you try to heal relationships. Why? Because you understand the value of relationships. You understand what God has given to you in Christ. You are peaceable because you are at peace. You resist fights. You resist divisions. You resist the influence of the heart to cause problems and conflict and, 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 and um, dissensions amongst the saints. What does the proverb says? Uh, says Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers a multitude of offenses or sins. Peaceableness relates to being gracious and forbearing. And that's why it is hard. It's by nature, that is not who we are. We are self-centered, proud people. So in saying that wisdom is from above is... Peaceable, James is describing, describing the effect of a relationship that you have with God in what it should demonstrate with other people. I can't tell you how many times I've seen verbal wars in relationships amongst the saints. And it is sad. There, there was one occasion where saints nearly got to blows over a disagreement on color. It's sad. Well, I, I don't want that kind of color for the church. I don't think that that is, that is our um, ethic. So what? Look, I, I, will, I will go down fighting if it's pink, but I will eventually yield if 99% of you say we need to change our color to pink. 
Wisdom is peaceable in relationships. It is seen externally. Troublemakers. Skinnerlipper. You know what that is, right? We've got a different word, but I'm sanctified. So I'll use skinnerlipper. Are not peacemakers only those who are genuine Afrikaans-speaking people? Colored Afrikaans-speaking people will know. Tattletales are not peacemakers. Pride people. Yes, I use that intentionally. Not proud. I'm thinking of a specific group of people. Pride people are not peacemakers. Selfish people are not peacemakers. Those who are brash with their mouth and quick to speak are not peacemakers. Now, they may have a relationship with God, but they don't have the wisdom to understand what that relationship means on a horizontal level. So what should you do? Ask for wisdom. Those who cause disruptions in the church of Jesus Christ do not bear the fruit of wisdom, and they should. A person that has turmoil in his heart will have turmoil turmoil in his relationships. So, consider our relationships. What about our marriage? Yeah, I'm meddling. Do you have peace in your marriage? What do we normally say? Well, you don't know my husband and you don't know my wife. Look at James chapter 4 verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fight among you? It's the other person, right? Notice what he says. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That's the reason. There's an inward problem that causes external wars. Okay, let me end on this. Why is peace so hard in relationships, especially marriage? Well, because of the fall, that's really the answer, right? Well, yeah, obviously, because of the fall. But listen to God's judgment on Eve. And your desire will be for your husband. If you've been in this church, you know exactly what that means. That is not to have an intimate relationship with him. Your desire is to rule him, to control him, to manipulate him. Notice what God says as a judgment on the man. But you will dominate her. Rule is the word there. The conflict that we have in our relationships is part of God's judgment on our marriage relationships. That is why it is so hard. And all the married people said, Amen. That's a relief. I thought it was me. Yes, it is you. God did not make it easy because of the The weight of the disrespect, the dishonor that took place in the garden. You will have a lifelong struggle in your relationships. Now, to a degree, it's redeemed in Jesus Christ because you have peace with God. You can have peace on a more regular basis as a married couple, but it will not be perfect. That's reality. I am by no means going to throw out the rosy roses and make you feel like you are able to perfect 
your relationship with your wife. You can work on it and you'll get good at it. You will learn the ability to keep your tongue. But you will not be perfect at that until Jesus comes. Don't you wish that he would come right now? (laughs) We can live in peace with one another. But it is hard work. It is hard work. Not only is it hard for those who are in a married relationship, but it is hard for those who are single and are dating and are engaged or pursuing a courtship with a woman. It is hard. Why? Because God wants to demonstrate the the hearted nature of our sins. You will have hardship in your relationships because it has been severed. My relationship with you has been severed. God is giving us an echo of what took place in the garden on a daily basis. So if you have problems in your relationships, what is it pointing to? The fall. God is showing us on a daily basis, you don't have peace because my peace with you has been severed. But there is hope. In Jesus Christ, you can have peace with God. And because of that, you can work on your peace with others. So when James says that wisdom from above is first of all peace, uh, is first of, all, first of all pure, he relates to how it's, it's in, in direct relation to God and how that is demonstrated and felt amongst God's people. Not as far as I wanted to go, but I will end there. Wisdom from God changes the way that we think, the way that we talk, the way that we relate to one another. If you are in in human relationships that conflict exists, check your own heart. Don't blame the other person. Because 99% of the time, it is you. And often what we do is, Lord, please work on my wife. Lord, please work on that man. Lord, please work on that brother or that sister. It's usually outward. Let us try by God's grace to work on the peace that he has given to us. Wisdom is characterized by purity and is magnified by peaceableness. Also, wisdom is amplified by gentleness and reinforced by willingness to work with others, to heal to others. You want to learn more about that? Come back next week and we'll see how God is able to change us for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are such a patient God. When we look at our relationships, we see turmoil. And often it is not because of our partners or our friends or the saints around us. It's because of our own hearts. And so we ask for forgiveness. We ask that you would help us to walk in peace with one another because you have established peace with us. Thank you for your grace and thank you for your son. And we pray that your words would reap life-changing benefits for everyone that has heard it this morning. So we give thanks to you in Christ's name. Amen.